Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, it's Adams on Agriculture. Produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Here's your host, Mike Adams. And hello, everyone. Welcome to Adams on Agriculture here at Midweek. Thank you for joining us and letting us be part of your day. We thank you very much for that. Here's what we'll be talking about. Broadband, important to agriculture, important to rural America. We're seeing that emphasized right now during COVID-19. Uh, it's very important as we move forward to, and the efforts underway to bring broadband to, to parts of rural America that have little or in some cases no access to uh, the Internet, to uh, the the possibilities of that it opens up. You know, we talk a lot about you can do business anywhere if you have the connection, if you have the connectivity to the broadband, and um, some places that's not the case yet. We're going to talk with the CEO of the Rural Broadband Association about that on our program today. Take a look at uh, the areas that still need to be addressed and what's going on, what's being proposed that would help address those areas of need to get everyone uh, the broadband capabilities that uh, they need. You know, it's one of those things we kind of take for granted if you have it, and it's hard to imagine some places that don't, but there are many places that really do not, and especially in some of our areas in rural America. So we'll address that today. Also, markets, as China continues to buy, and we continue to look at this year's crop, maybe not quite as big as we thought. How does this impact markets? We'll talk with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. And speaking of China and their purchases, we're going to talk with the Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Jake Parker will join us a little bit later on as we get his perspective on the purchases by China. Uh, Is it because of... uh, Uh, phase one trade deal or would they have been doing that anyway what does he see ahead what's he hearing uh, with their uh, business partners as they have connections in china we'll get the latest coming up on today's program but right now we're going to start things off again looking at the biofuels industry we've talked a lot about this it's uh, becoming front and center in this election and it's a critical time for the biofuels industry with a number of outstanding issues that need to be resolved joining us now is monty shaw executive director of the iowa renewable fuels association monty thank you for joining us I want to start with an announcement by iowa governor reynolds uh going to use some of the remaining cares act funds in part for uh, biofuels producers in your state of Iowa. Tell us about that, the the significance of that, how that will help. Well, it's been a really tough time in the biofuels industry, as you know. Um, really going back three or four years with the loss of the China market to the trade wars. And we had, you know, over 4 billion gallons of demand destruction from illegal refinery exemptions to the renewable fuel standard that really set back our domestic market. And then on top of that, you know, along comes 2020 and COVID, which, you know, destroyed demand uh, for many months and it's still not back to full, full, you know, normal fuel use. So our, our, you know, lots of folks have been hurt by this, lots of other industries, and many of them have gotten help uh, federally. Um, so far, the federal government has not helped out the biofuels industry. So we're very appreciative that Governor Reynolds stepped forward. And with some of the CARES Act money that the state got, she is providing some financial assistance to biofuels producers. It's a great lifeline. It should keep us going. It doesn't solve the problems, um, but hopefully the feds can get some stuff worked out eventually. Um, But it it was very nice to have. 
Yeah, we've kind of gone from wondering if ethanol and biofuels will be in the next uh, aid package, COVID aid package. Now we're wondering if there will be a next package. And if so, will agriculture even be included? A lot of uncertainty there. Uh, Definitely a lot of uncertainty. You know, we continue to work with our uh, Iowa delegation in both the House and the Senate, the bipartisan, to push for that. They're working as hard as they can. But, you know, every day a presidential election takes closer. Politics, you know, makes things in D.C. harder and harder to do, and, and they haven't exactly been very functional lately anyway. So it's hard to, you know, it's hard to put any faith that something will come out of that, but we have to try because there's a lot at stake here. Um, you know, we continue, even though, you know, maybe demand destruction from COVID, you know, there was a, you know, 50% capacity was offline. Now maybe it's only 10 or 15% offline. That's better, but it, but you're still not able to sustain profits because you still have all of this uh, c- potential capacity overhanging the demand. And so anytime there's any movement, you know, you have a lot of gallons chasing whatever demand there is. So, you know, we just, you know, you, it's just very hard to keep your nose above water, to pay your bills, buy that feedstock from the farmers, pay your employees. And, and folks are struggling out here. So, you know, we did get a, a boost uh, from the governor. Um, you know, I think two and a half cents a gallon produced in the first quarter before COVID hit. And uh, there's a cap on that for plants. But It'll help. It'll help, you know, pay the bills, uh, pay the payroll for, for a few months or a few weeks, depending on the size of your plant. But um, we still don't have good fundamentals for the ethanol and biodiesel industries right now. Have you lost any plants during COVID? I know some were shutting down or, or, or slowing down, but have they yeah, all come so, back? So many plants uh, did shut down, and, and nearly every plant, probably every plant, slowed down at the depth of the of the crisis um, when we had over 50% of our capacity offline. Uh, with 10% offline, there are still a couple of plants uh, that are offline, um, and there are still plants that are running at reduced capacities. Um, obviously, not as many as at the worst part, but we still have both. In terms of will we lose them, um, no one yet has has filed for bankruptcy. Uh, no one yet has has sold out under financial pressure, but I do worry about that um, if we can't get some help from the feds um, to help make up the, the demand destruction that came because of government-mandated shutdowns. Remember, this was not just some – I mean, we already deal with enough uncertainty that we can't control from Mother Nature uh, to, to, you know, world trade events to everything else. But, you know, the, the most recent, um, you know, blow that we took from the demand destruction from COVID, I mean, that was government ordered. Now, I'm not saying that was right or wrong, but, you know, we told people to stop driving, to stay in their homes, to shelter in place all over the country, and it just it had horrible effects. You know, the oil companies have gotten help, but we haven't. That doesn't make sense to me. Uh, many sectors in agriculture have gotten help from the USDA, much needed, much deserved, but the, the current, you know, Sonny Purdue has said, Secretary Purdue has said, well, I'm not going to help biofuels unless Congress tells me. Uh, many of us and past secretaries of ag think he has the authority to, to help biofuels right now. Um, but he's, he's made it clear he's not going to, and I don't know why, but he's made clear he's not going to unless Congress tells him. So we are trying to get Congress to tell him. Um, but, but as you mentioned earlier, you know, can we get that in a bill and will there even be a bill to get it in? So, you know, uncertainty remains. Uh, the Trump administration still hasn't acted on uh, 98 now, can you believe that? 98 pending uh, exemption requests from the renewable fuel standard. They haven't rolled out the rule that would set the renewable fuels levels for 2021. They've really left us 
um, in a in a sea of uncertainty right now. And it's really a critical issue in this election, uh, uh, in this campaign. And certainly, we've talked a lot about the, the the waivers and the lack of RVO levels being announced for next year. These are all critical areas, and of course, the loss of markets like China, uh, very. Uh, damaging to the ethanol industry as well. All right, Monty, as always, thank you for the update, and we'll stay in touch. Appreciate it. All right, thank you. Bye. Monty Shaw, Executive Director of the Iowa Renewable Fuels Association. All right, the importance of broadband to agriculture, to rural America. We'll talk next with the CEO of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association, right here on AOA. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. Well, one of the upgrades to NAFTA in the new USMCA was supposed to be in the area of dairy. And I want to get an update to see how that is going here in the early stages of USMCA. We're joined now by Shauna Morris, Vice President Trade Policy for the National Milk Producers Federation. Shauna, thanks for joining us. How's it going so far here in the early stages of USMCA from a dairy perspective? Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, I'd say in the early stages of USMCA, uh, we're still hopeful about the tremendous promise that this agreement has for dairy farmers and dairy manufacturers. But it's also very clear from this early start of the process so far that a lot more work's ahead of the U.S. in order to get the full benefits of those uh, commitments that we extracted from Canada as well as from Mexico under USMCA. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. I spend a lot of time in the garage, but even more time in the rain, sleet, and mud. In 95, I helped tow your moving trailer. In 05, I helped you get out of a ditch. Yeah, I know I'm a bit rusty, and sadly in 09, it was sparks from me. Your handy chains dragging behind your truck that accidentally started a wildfire. Sparks from dragging chains can start a wildfire. Spark a change, not a wildfire. Visit SmokeyBear.com. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service, your state forester, and the Ad Council. Only you can prevent wildfires. What do Mick Jagger, Barbara Walters, and Star Jones all have in common? They've all suffered from something called heart valve disease. Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans, and if left untreated, can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 
You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. One of the things we have learned during COVID-19 There are a number of things we can do virtually. We can do uh, on our computers, on our devices. may not be as good as, or we may not like it as much as we would rather be in, uh, you know, face-to-face. We like to be with our friends, and we'd like to have that chance to talk face-to-face in person. But uh, we have learned that we can get by. We can do a lot of things uh, by hooking up to the internet but that's if you can hook up to the internet if you do have a good connection if you do have those broadband capabilities and some places do not or have very limited or not very good access to uh, uh, the internet so that's why broadband is important not only for uh, agriculture but for all of rural America a lot of uh, we hear a lot of times people say you know I could go somewhere and live anywhere and do business if I have good internet connection so that's uh that's a huge issue that has been brought to light to kind of put the the focus on during covid19 want to talk about that now with shirley bloomfield ceo of ntca the rural broadband association and shirley thank you for joining us um you have talked about uh, the importance of getting broadband out throughout rural america where where do we stand with that now with those efforts to to get broadband out there in places that do, does not have do not have it now well mike i appreciate the opportunity to share with you a little bit more about where we stand um, I think that we've been making progress, but honestly, if you are somebody listening to your show today, for example, right now, who doesn't have good connectivity or has slow or jittered connectivity, they're probably shaking their head and saying it's not going to come soon enough because you aptly pointed out that if there's anything the pandemic has shown is that how much we rely on this connectivity and how much how much such a big part of our economy and the ag economy um, depends on it and the ability of the agriculture industry to actually move forward in a really interesting way using um, artificial intelligence, using data, um, the ability to, to, to store and quickly access that data. So, so that was a really long way of saying there's some policies in place that have really kind of put their foot on the gas. Um, it's kind of unfortunate that, uh, that it's taking so long because we have been beating the drum for years how important it is to make sure that everybody, no matter what their zip code, has access to connectivity. And, and now I think suddenly it's a little bit of a hair on fire moment. But you know what? Mm-hmm. Whatever it takes to get uh, a little momentum is a good thing. I mentioned this earlier. If, if you have good access you probably can't imagine not having it. You can't imagine there are people that don't have it. But that's really the situation. There are places where they don't. And you've called it uh, really two rural Americas. Yeah. I think the common, you know, people love to talk about the digital divide. And when they talk about the digital divide, they like to talk about, you know, urban America versus rural America. And in reality, I really see it as a rural-rural divide because I think you've got 
a rural America that is served by those who are community-based providers. Um, for example, the folks I represent are folks who literally live and have their business and in their employees in these rural communities where they live and serve. And then, frankly, you've got large corporations who um, are nationwide providers. And quite frankly, if you are looking to compete in Denver, you are not really that interested in putting your money and your resources and your infrastructure into the eastern plains of Colorado. It's just, it's just a fact. So we've got those portions of the country, which unfortunately still are a lot of the landmass where folks may be population density of five to 10 customers per square mile, um, where we have yet to see broadband or where folks are saying that, you know, a 10-1 speed is an acceptable speed. And anybody who's got kids learning from home and they're working from home and they're trying to upload data and download data knows that that is simply not acceptable. So we've got, we've got some work to do to basically get those larger carriers to be willing to walk away. So folks who are, are willing to actually put infrastructure into those markets um, have the ability to do so. Yeah, that uh, move to e-learning that many have been forced to go to or have chosen to go to in some cases, uh, that's highlighted uh, the concerns here as well because it's one thing to say learn from home, but if you don't have the good access, Internet access, you can't do it. Right. So what we're seeing is a lot of these rural school children, you know, are um, you, you're creating another generation of haves and have-nots because those with connectivity are able to, you know, do their Zooms with their teachers and do the electronic homework. And then you've got the teachers in the classroom doing five sets of, you know, um, Xerox versions and dropping off the workbooks at kids' homes. And, you know, what I really worry about is we're not going to see the impact for another couple of years of that group of kids who were not getting the same stimulation, the same um, interactivity, um, the same socialization. Not that socializing over Zoom is amazing, but you know what? It's better than sitting at your kitchen counter by yourself. So we have a lot of school children. Um, you know, a lot of my companies across the country have been putting in, you know, trying to figure out how to work with the local school administrations to say, which of your school kids don't have connectivity and let's connect them. So there's been a real proactive effort going on right now. We're working really closely with the National Rural Education Association on some of those pieces. But, and, and we're also having my companies are setting up hotspots across their area. But you know what? No kid should be sitting in McDonald's parking lot to do their homework. It's simply unacceptable in this country that we live in. We're talking with Shirley Bloomfield, CEO of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association. Shirley, you think back in the history of this country, how electricity came to rural America, and and we've seen water access, you know, rural water districts, and these these movements across the country. Why have we not seen the same thing, you think, with broadband? So you're spot on, and we saw it with telephone as well. And I will say that my 850 companies started off as those local telephone companies that provided service in these rural communities where the Bell companies chose not to go. So then we need to take that next step and say, you know, broadband. So let's move on from just telephone connectivity being basically a basic utility to broadband connectivity. I, I will share the reason um, it doesn't get cited as a utility is there's a lot of providers, um, large providers that don't want the baggage that comes with being a, uh, a, a utility. Um, you know, broadband has become a commodity. It's become a competitive service. And once you start saying that it's a utility, you fall under a whole different set of regulations. 
Um, but that may be what it actually takes. That combined with some federal support, because just being really honest with you, some of these parts of the country where um, folks are serving, where my company serves, you can't do it with a business model. You can't basically say you're going to get an ROI on some of the investments that are made because broadband's pretty expensive um, and you don't have a lot of customers on that network. So we need to continue to expand some of the existing programs that are in place um, to kind of further that push out into some of these underserved areas. But it's going to take kind of an money, interesting time. Yeah, yeah, my, it is costly, and especially if, as you say, in areas where you have fewer customers. Uh, the irony here is one of the things coming out of COVID nineteen, a lot of people in urban areas are moving out to the uh, to the rural areas. Uh, then they get out there and say, "Wait a minute, we don't have uh, we don't have broadband." So it's kind of a you know a chicken and egg situation, maybe in some cases. So true, so true. And, you know, as we sit there and think this is the right opportunity for a rural renaissance of sorts, you know, one of the things we did about six or seven years ago, we started a smart rural community initiative. So we literally allow our communities who offer a gig service um, hundreds of them do, to be able to brand themselves as a smart rural community. So when folks start to look around and say, oh, I just love, you know, whatever town, they're able to actually see that not only do I, I, I like the, you know, this area of the country, but, oh, who knew they have a gig service or they have 100 megabits and they've got robust broadband and this is how they power, you know, the different infrastructure, telemedicine or distance learning or precision ag in their communities. So we've really created this branding program so our folks can basically share to those people in New York City who might be looking for a reason to leave. Um, you know, here's some places to come. You can do what you need to do, but you can do it um, without the hassle of a large urban area. Well, I know there's some efforts underway. States like Missouri and many others are working on this. I know you're working hard on this. It's just a critical issue that I think has been brought to the forefront during this pandemic. Shirley, good to talk with you, and uh, we hope to talk again soon to keep this in front of people and uh, make people aware of the challenges, but also the opportunities if we can get broadband out to rural America. Thank you very much. Thanks so much, Mike. Take care. You too. Shirley Bloomfield, CEO of NTCA, the Rural Broadband Association. Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, you, you can conduct business uh, all around the world from anywhere if you have that uh, broadband capability. We've seen it in places in rural America and some big businesses uh, at work uh, in places you wouldn't think they would be, far removed from the urban areas because they have the, the broadband. But in other areas where they might like to go, they just don't have it. And it's a key for uh, helping grow a lot of our rural communities and improve their economies. But uh, a lot of challenges. All right, we'll talk markets next with Arlen Suderman here on AOA. Stay with us. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. Most of us like to be out in the sun. That's why sunscreen and other safety measures are key to protecting your skin from aging and cancer. The FDA recommends using a sunscreen with an SPF of 15 or higher. Also, look for broad spectrum on the label. That means both harmful ultraviolet A and B rays are blocked. Remember, SPF plus broad spectrum equal healthy fun in the sun. Visit www.fda.gov sunscreen for more information. A message from the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Wearing a seatbelt while driving or riding in a vehicle can greatly reduce the risk of injury or death. Sadly, half of all roadway fatalities are unbuckled drivers and passengers. 
People who aren't buckled endanger not only themselves, but others in the vehicle as well. Everyone riding in vehicles should be properly restrained to increase the likelihood of survival. Drivers should make sure that all occupants of the vehicle, including themselves, are buckled up. Drive safe. Save lives. Time now for a market check here on Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. In the grain and oil seed sector, we've had an easier tone on this Wednesday in corn futures after two days of gains, which were spurred on in part by worsening crop conditions. We'll have to see if further strength is justified, according to some traders. Private exporters reporting to USDA sales of 400,000 metric tons of soybeans for delivery to China during the 2020-21 marketing year. Soybean futures an hour into the day, trending three to five and a half cents higher. November up four and a quarter at 9.24 and a half. December corn down a quarter of a cent, near unchanged, 3.54 and a quarter. Chicago wheat December unchanged, 5.35 and a half. Kansas City wheat December down three quarters of a cent, 454 and three quarters. Minneapolis spring wheat December down two and three quarters, 527 and a half. For livestock at the Merck in live cattle futures, we are steady to 25 cents lower in the front three contracts of the market. October down 25 at 108.50. Feeder cattle September 30 cents higher at 143.37. Cash cattle sales so far this week have been seen at 104 to 107 in the south, mostly 105 to 106, steady to a dollar lower compared to a week ago. In lean hog futures, October down 40 cents at 55.55. December down 25 cents, 56.47 per hundredweight. For the major financial indicators on Wall Street, the Dow down 53, NASDAQ up 57, S&P up 7, October crude oil in New York up 38 cents. You're listening to Adams on Agriculture. I'm Rusty Halverson from the American Ag Network. You may not realize how important three letters can be. For a patient who needs type A, B, or O blood, these letters can mean life. But there simply aren't enough people giving blood. Every two seconds, someone in the U.S. needs it. But only about 3% of the population donates. Without more donors, hospitals may not have the blood needed to save lives. That's why the American Red Cross needs people to help restore the A's, B's, and O's that are depleting each day. When you make your appointment to donate blood at redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types, you can help give strength to kids parents, and grandparents who face life and death challenges. From cancer patients to accident survivors waiting for critical surgeries, your generosity can give someone more life. Don't wait until the letters A, B, and O are missing from hospital shelves. You are the missing type patients need. Visit redcrossblood.org forward slash missing types or call 1-800-RED-CROSS to make your donation appointment today. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now back to Mike Adams. Well, let's talk markets with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for Stone X. All right, Arlen, we have a situation where China continues to buy, and we're kind of backing off the uh, 
huge crop uh, story, kind of saying it's still going to be good, but maybe not as big as we once thought. Shouldn't those two things really uh, spark a rally? Oh, they really should. Um, but the question is how big a rally, and that comes down to bottom line. How What are the ending stocks going to be? And traders are still trying to get a handle on that. Uh, we know that we have abundant supplies of corn. Those supplies are getting smaller. Are they small enough to justify rationing demand with higher prices? Because when you raise prices, that does ration demand. And so you don't want to get up there and ration demand before you know you need it. Otherwise, you end up with more supplies and that just keep holding prices down for a longer period of time. Soybeans are a little bit more vulnerable. They don't have as big a surplus supply. That's why we're seeing a little bit more strength in them and the charts look a little more impressive. Overall in the corn so far, all we've seen is uh, unwinding of short positions by the funds providing support. We've seen a dramatic decrease in open interest over the last several of weeks on this rally but we're really not seeing them build new ownership. And to really have confidence in a rally, we need to see them build new ownership. And we don't see a lot of that happening yet. And I think they're waiting to get a better handle on what the size of the crop is and just how much China might buy first. As we look at storm damage, we look at growing drought, and we look at the declining uh, crop uh, condition numbers each week. Is that getting the market's attention? Are they starting to buy this uh, smaller crop scenario? Uh, They are. Um, Traders are reluctant to be short right now. When the markets do break, the breaks are being bought. And I think we'll continue to see that until we have a better handle on the size of the crop. With a hot week this week adding to the stress of the crops, the expectation is that we'll see another significant decline in crop ratings this coming Monday. Um, But then forecasts uh, suggest that many areas should get rain starting this weekend. Um, And that should help, although it would have helped a lot more if it would have been two or three weeks ago. It will be late for some crops almost too late, um, but it should at least slow or stop the damage in many areas. The tendency in years like this is uh, because of all the hype about the problems as the crop ratings fall and then they fall too far, as we get into harvest, we find out that we overshot it to the downside and they start coming back up a little bit. We just don't know where the bottom is from where we're going to bounce yet. We're talking with Arlen Suderman with Stone X. All right, what do you make of the China purchases? Is it because of Phase 1, or would they have been making these purchases anyway, you think? Well, they certainly have some fears about uh, President Trump and, and what he might do to him as he's threatened some more uh, capital controls and put some more pressure on him. And uh, we saw that again recently where some more threats were made and some more actions taken and immediately they took a more positive approach to the talks and made sure that we had a conversation and we saw step up and purchases again but there's let's not be fooled there's no desire to impress the americans so to speak and be nice to the americans they despise us um they want to be able to buy elsewhere they're They formed a coalition with Russia to try to encourage Russia to grow more soybeans so they can import from Russia. That's going to take a while. That's not going to change things overnight. Russia is a very small um, producer of soybeans and exporter of soybeans. Um, They're obviously investing in Brazil and buying all they can from Brazil. Um, But near term, they still do have that paranoia 
that coronavirus is going to shut down ports in major exporting countries of the world, including Brazil and the United States. Um, I talked to our Shanghai office this week and asked them, you know, what are the odds that they're going to do that? And they said, you know, it, it is a matter of math for the rest of this calendar year. They just can't import enough to really uh, hit some of the big talk and expectations out there. Generally, September, October, November, December, you might see seven and a half to eight million metric tons per month get shipped from the United States to China. That kind of hits our capacity. That would hit us about 37 million metric tons for the year. Um, and then you look at next year, or once you get past the first of the year, if Brazil's got a big crop and weather is not a problem there, then we would expect them to be the cheap supplies again, especially into February and beyond, and not only China, but many non-China countries going that direction. Um, on the corn side, they have the TRQ for the current calendar year, 7.2 million metric tons. It would seem like they've bought enough to exceed that, but much of what they bought could be delivered after the turn of the calendar to 2021. Will they increase their t TRQ for 2021? We should find out in the next few weeks. They have said here in recent weeks they obviously have a desire not to. They, they want to be self-sufficient. They're doing everything they can <clears throat> to be self-sufficient. We just don't know whether they're going to be able to this next year with some of the dryness that hurt production in northern production areas this year. So if we talk to our people on the ground in China. There is little uh, consensus on what China might do. The odds after today's purchase and yesterday's purchase, actually yesterday's purchase for corn, are that they will exceed or increase the TRQs for 2021, but no consensus. Will it be the 10 million metric tons? Will it be the 15 or more million metric tons? It's really hard to get a handle on what the government's going to do because they're giving mixed messages. Hmm. Harvest starting in some places, not far away for many others. Um, do you see enough of a, a rally here to really spark old crop sales, or is it... Uh, they're going to try to find storage space to keep some old crop as well as uh, the new crop coming in. Uh, what do you see happening? Or have you been surprised? We haven't seen more movement than we've had. Well, the farmers, the eternal optimists. We certainly have seen them cleaning out of old crop, trying to make room for new crop, particularly where production looks like it's going to be decent for this coming year. Uh, we have seen an uptick in new crop sales here as well, but he's far below where he normally would be at this time of year. So there's a lot of sales to still happen. Um, so as the funds are uh, covering their shorts, we're also seeing some farmer sales into that with a lot more work to do. As he gets into harvest, he tends to focus primarily on that. And then it's how big is the crop. And he's looking from what he sees in, in, in front of his combine, and he's projecting that across the rest of the country, thinking that's what everyone else is seeing as well. You know, and as you said earlier, this is a big crop. It's just not as big as what it was previously. Uh, as I work the math and I push the numbers around and what China might buy or might not buy, even with the decline in yields, and we've seen about five-plus bushels come off the yield over the last two weeks, the national yield, I still have trouble getting below a $2 billion bushel carryout. That does justify modestly higher prices. Um, so we could see anywhere from a 30 to $0.50 cent rally uh, off of the lows, um, but it doesn't justify 
a sustained rally to something much higher than that above $4 unless we can further decrease the, the size of the crop or increase the demand or some combination. Really come, keeps coming back to stocks, doesn't it? How much do we have on hand? It really does. Now, we need to say the caveat here working to the farmer's advantage is there's a lot of money in the system. M1 money supply is is massive right now. It's uh, exploding higher at a record pace because of fiscal and monetary policy from our government over the last few months, and that money is trying to find its way into the markets. That's why we're seeing the S&P and the NASDAQ at record levels. We've seen lumber at record highs. We're seeing cocoa and coffee, um, sugar prices, a lot of various commodities surging higher if they have any type of a story at all. So if we do see a story develop in the ag commodities, there is a lot of money wanting to chase it and would probably chase it beyond what the fundamentals justify. So that's the question. Can they develop enough of the story to attract that money in? And if so, we could see a, a larger run for prices. And I always ask, what do you see going on with the ethanol industry as far as the demand there for corn? Well, we're really flattening out here. We had a better-than-expected recovery uh, in the first few months of the economic recovery, but things have really flattened out now with some of the major driving states still having heavy restrictions because of coronavirus and a lot of people still working at home. And uh, when you look at U.S. gasoline consumption, it is really flattened out now at basically 11 or 12 percent below what it was pre-COVID, and that is capping the recovery in the ethanol industry as well. We did see a slight increase in this morning's numbers for last week, but it's been tough to really build on where we're at and get back to where we were pre-COVID. But that work-from-home thing, that may continue post-COVID. It really will probably for a lot of people, and it depends on the organization. Um, we have a lot of people continuing to work from home, and we have others who we find that uh, productivity is greater when they're together and collaborating. Um, and so it depends on the type of work you do. But many companies are certainly doing that, and that is reducing uh, the the uh, resumption of gasoline consumption. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see as we go through the rest of this pandemic, and hopefully it's coming to an end soon, and we go post-COVID, how all that sorts out uh, moving forward. All right, Arlen, always good to talk with you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mike. Take care. Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist for StoneX. Well, we're going to focus more on these purchases by China and what might be ahead. We're going to talk with the Senior Vice President of the U.S.-China Business Council. Jake Parker joins us next. What is he hearing from customers on both sides? And what does he think will be happening the rest of this year? We'll talk about that next, right here on AOA. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Don't go away. More Adams on Agriculture coming right up. 180 over 111, and I had a stroke. When I woke up, I couldn't speak or walk. 145 over 92, and then I had a heart attack. 182 over 100, and I had a heart attack and a cardiac arrest, and then a stroke. Everything changed. It felt like my life was over. This is what high blood pressure sounds like. You might not feel its symptoms, but the results from a heart attack or stroke are far from invisible or silent. 150 over 90, and I had a stroke. 
If I would have followed a treatment plan, I would not be in this situation. 180 over 110, and I had a stroke. And I'm 33, so I never see this coming. If you've come off your treatment plan, get back on it. Or talk with your doctor to create an exercise, diet, and medication plan that works for you. Go to loweryourhbp.org. Head to toe, everything's changed. Head to toe. Brought to you by the American Heart Association, American Medical Association, and the Ad Council. Have you written a book and want to get it published? Then call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538. Immediately, that's 800-955-4538. Page Publishing is looking for authors of all types of books. And unlike most publishers, Page Publishing will take the time to review each and every book submitted to them and give you their feedback. If they like what they read, they'll get your book into bookstores and for sale online at Amazon, the Apple iTunes Store, Barnes & Noble, and other outlets. They handle everything. Editing, cover design, copyright protection, printing, publicity, and distribution. So if you've written a novel, children's book, cookbook, inspirational work, poetry, or a biography and want to get it published, then you need to call Page Publishing and do it immediately. Call 800-955-4538 now for your free author submission kit. Again, for your free author submission kit, call 800-955-4538. That's 800-955-4538. Your road to fame and fortune could very well start with this simple phone call. Call Page Publishing at 800-955-4538 for your free author submission kit. Hey, Dad, your prescription will be ready in just a minute. Hey, Dad, your laundry will be ready in just a minute. Dad? Your lunch will be ready in just a minute. Hey, honey, why don't you take a minute? When you help care for a loved one, you give them as much time as you can, making sure they're safe and comfortable. But it's just as important that you take some time for yourself. At AARP, we can help with information and useful tips on how you can maintain a healthy life balance, care for your own physical and mental well-being, and manage the challenges of caring for a loved one. Because the better care you take of yourself, the better care you can provide for your loved one. Thanks, Dad. Thank you. You're there for them. We're here for you. Find free care guides to support you and your loved one at aarp.org caregiving. That's aarp.org caregiving. A public service announcement brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, farm radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Adams on Agriculture prides itself on bringing top leaders in the egg industry right to your radio speakers. AOA wants to continue that conversation right to your fingertips. Follow AOA on Twitter at AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams himself at the handle Mike Adams Egg. You will receive real-time highlights of the show and keep up with which convention or industry meeting AOA is attending. That's AOA underscore talk show and Mike Adams Egg. We hope to see you online. Recently on Adams on Agriculture. So there's a big debate on who should have oversight over gene editing of livestock. Should it be USDA or FDA? We're going to talk about that with Dr. Dan Kovich, Director of Science and Technology for the National Pork Producers Council. Dan, thanks for joining us. Before we get into the oversight issue, let's talk about gene editing in livestock. Uh, explain to our listeners what that is and what's the significance of it. Pork producers are definitely very excited about gene editing right now. What gene editing is is a new 
uh, bag of tools, if you will, to look at making very precise changes within the genes of the pig or, or any other animal, cattle, poultry, you name it. To do that in a very precise way to have a very known effect. And I think what's really important for people to understand is, unlike some of the older technology, this does not involve swapping genes between different types of animals. For the information important to rural America, join us on Adams on Agriculture. You're listening to AOA, Adams on Agriculture. Hi, this is Mike Adams. You can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Information America's farmers and ranchers need to know. Adams on Agriculture. Now, back to Mike Adams. All right, let's get more perspective on the relationship and trade between uh, the U.S. and China. Joining us now, Jake Parker, Senior Vice President, the U.S.-China Business Council. Jake, good to have you back. Uh, we watched the uh, the rhetoric, of which, at least what we can see and, and hear, between U.S. and China. and It seems a little more positive right now. Not long ago, it seemed pretty negative. Uh, how do you gauge what's going on back and forth, and is there a, a difference between what we see and hear in in the media and in public, and what's going on behind the scenes? I think the rhetoric in the media and what you're seeing publicly is one aspect of the overall rhetoric of the administration. Uh, certainly, the meeting of the principals, Ambassador Lighthizer and Vice Premier Leo Huz, as well as Secretary Mnuchin, is positive, particularly as we have a deteriorating environment in the strategic side and as the U.S. government in some areas continues to sanction Chinese companies. I think both the Chinese and the U.S. governments recognize that the Phase One agreement is one of the stabilizing forces of the overall relationship at the moment, and we continue to see that positive rhetoric and trade, something we hope will continue going forward. They're making some big purchases of U.S. ag products. Is this a, an indication, I mean, we, we, we look at it as are they meeting Phase One commitments, but is there really a, a, a huge need there? And uh, we hear about floods and droughts going on in China. What is the situation there? So, so there are a couple of things. One, yes, uh, China is committed to meeting its phase one commitments. We've heard that repeatedly from, from their side. I think the phase one has been difficult to meet in the first half of the year because of the coronavirus outbreak. Obviously, that depressed some of the demand domestically within China. The swine flu pandemic continues to lag on the, the need for certain types of products. Uh, obviously, the flooding will, will require some substitution as well. There's also something that's that's really popping up in the Chinese media, and that's President Xi calling for not wasting of domestic food. So again, just, just getting back to that food security stability issue that China is very focused on. So there should be opportunities for American agricultural producers going forward. I was going to ask you, what do you see going forward? Everybody's looking at it. Can, will they meet phase one commitments or how close do they get to them? What do you see as we go here into the fall? So I think some of the, the, the leading econo economists in this area say that China's met around 40% of its commitments to date. Obviously, a big part of that was around the, the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, we are hearing from our contacts on the China side that, that the vice premier is very much pushing for additional purchases. Publicly, they've always said that these needed to be market-oriented, uh, but we do think that there, there's some flexibility, particularly from the state sector, to begin acquiring more American agricultural products to ensure that China is meeting its commitments. Uh, so we should begin to see, I think, a more rapid acceleration of purchases in the coming months uh, before the December 31 deadline. 
beyond agriculture goods, what are you seeing in other uh, areas of business and industry? How's our how's trade going? So trade generally is, is going fairly well. Again, that, that phase one agreement is, is the ballast of the overall relationship at the moment. However, I, I think many of our companies are concerned some of the recent actions announced by the administration, particularly around uh, some of the restrictions on uh, an application called TikTok, which I think is widely known in the U.S., another against WeChat, which has a, is a big commercial nexus point for many American companies operating in China and also globally. Uh, if these actions were to move forward, they would have a deleterious impact on the industry. And our companies are telling us they worry that may undermine some of the progress that's been made in phase one. As one recent U.S. government official told us, uh, if there's only so much external pressure that can be brought to bear on the phase one agreement before uh, it begins to lead to the Chinese government questioning whether whether it's something they can remain committed to. So, so these other dynamics in the strategic relationship do have an impact on trade in ways that are not fully um, yet clear. Of course, another dynamic is the election coming up in November. Um, when we look at the two possible scenarios, what do you look? How do you look at them from a trade standpoint? Look, I think we're a nonpartisan organization. We work with the Democrats and Republicans. I think it's safe to assume that any new administration, whether it's a second Trump administration or a Biden administration, would likely maintain the tariffs that are already in place and ensure that China does live up to its commitments of a negotiated agreement. I suspect that there would likely be different strategic approaches. I know when you look at some of the, the campaign announcements, the Biden campaign, they talk about strengthening the United States domestically, investing in infrastructure, approaching China from a position of strength, building more multilateral coalitions to bring pressure to bear on some of China's uh, practices, which we're uncomfortable with. I think the Trump administration would likely take a uh, an approach that's very similar to what they've taken now with maybe an acceleration of some of the policies and export controls, um, again, re restrictions on certain Chinese government apps, additional assertive actions in the South China Sea. Um, but I, I think on the trade side, mo both would be roughly similar, at least for the months following the election. Is this an uneasy alliance? I mean, we hear about, uh, you know, how China views uh, the United States and would they would prefer to buy from someone else if they could. Uh, how, how do you see this relationship moving forward? Uh, there's no doubt that we're at a historic low in the bilateral relationship. Uh, this, this strategic competition between the U.S. and China is something that will not abate regardless of who's elected in the future. Uh, I think uh, both both sides are trying to diversify away from each other, from relying on each other's supply chains. Both sides are articulating what national security is in a broader way than we've seen in the past. And um, it's certainly going to be a rocky trajectory uh, in, in the future. And that's something that needs to be managed. And frankly, some of the, the agricultural purchases and the relationship on the trade side is critically important to ensure that while the strategic relationship deteriorates, we continue to have a, a nexus point for the two sides to engage and have some positive momentum of progress going forward. Yeah, a lot of challenges, that's for sure. Jake, thank you very much. Always appreciate your perspective. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. Take care. Jake Parker, Senior Vice President with U.S.-China 
Business Council. All right, that wraps it up for today. Lots going on. Thank you for being with us. We'll try our best to keep you up to date on a lot of these issues, and uh, we'll do so again tomorrow. Hope you'll tune in and be with us on AOA. Be safe, everyone. Hi, this is Mike Adams. Thanks for listening to Adams on Agriculture. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world.